Hey guys, welcome to episode 162 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope that you're doing well. We have a few more episodes to ask for them, so this is the perfect time to do it because it's now officially fall. So please send us your scary listener stories. It can be anything, true crime or paranormal. We cannot wait to hear from you and give you our listener episode in October. It's always kind of like my favorite to record. So you can send your stories over to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. So we went through a lot of housekeeping stuff last time. So today I just want to get right into it. So John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Of course. So just a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode, because I know that it does benefit some listeners. This crime does involve violence against children. So I just wanted to let you know that at the top of the episode. On the morning of November 20th, 2010, a 911 call came in to the Tallahassee, Florida Police Department. A young boy had been asked by his mother to check on their neighbors. He knew the house well. It was where his friends lived. A pair of twins and their three-year-old brother. The renter of the home was their mother, 27-year-old Brandy Peters. Brandy's family had been trying to reach her the night before and then all that day on Saturday. They finally resorted to calling one of the neighbors that they knew to check on the family. When the little boy got to the house, he went to press the doorbell but realized that he could not because it was already pushed in and stuck. He looked to the window and saw what he thought was blood on the curtains. He peered inside, curiosity taking over, and he saw more blood. Blood actually all over the entire house. He knocked on the door one last time, hoping that he would get a response and that his friends were okay. But he had heard nothing. So he ran home to call his mother, who told him that he should call the police and that she was coming right home. Officers responded to what was described as a report of suspicious activity at 908 Saddle Creek Run. The responding officers knew that the address was located on the south side of town in a little subdivision. There, the neighborhood was a tight community, and that was evident by the fact that there were so many children playing in the streets when they arrived. But once the officers confirmed that there was blood inside the house, they did their best to tell the children to go inside so they wouldn't have to witness anything that happened afterwards. When the officers entered the home, they were immediately met with a gruesome crime scene. Brandy was found at the back door in what was a large foyer. She had been beaten, badly, and it appeared she was also shot several times. A wide and deep pool of blood surrounded her body on the tile floor beneath her, and blood spatter could be found on the white walls that surrounded her. The officers called for detectives to come to the scene, and they secured the scene with crime tape. When the detective who was assigned the case had been called, he was watching his son play soccer. He'd thought to himself that these calls were never easy. There had been a homicide, and he knew he would have to see a dead body. Something that would never get old. But what he didn't know was this case would be different than anything he had seen before. As he stood outside of the single-story home with the cute little porch, nothing could have prepared him 
for what he was about to witness. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. By the time crime scene analysts got to the scene on Saddle Creek Run, it was 2.45 p.m. By that time, a large crowd had gathered outside of the home. The residents of the subdivision stared at their neighbor's house, now surrounded by crime scene tape and swarmed with police officers. They feared the worst. And although what they feared was true, they could never imagine the hell that was captured on crime scene video that afternoon. The tape began with the analyst walking through the one-car garage into the home. They didn't want to enter through the front door because they didn't want anyone outside to see the horrors from within. Before anyone went into the house, those who had gone in first prepared them. It was bad. And this is also where I'm going to warn you that the description of the crime scene is hard to handle. The crime scene video captured Brandy in a pool of blood. She had been shot several times. And it was clear as they walked through the home and from what Brandy's body looked like that she had fought desperately for her life. The altercation, they believed, had begun in her bedroom. She had been shot there, but the wound had not been fatal. She had ran from her room and throughout the house, where she had been shot several more times. In total, she had been shot six times once to the side of her left cheek, another in the back of her head, once in her bicep, twice in her chest, and once in her upper abdomen. The sixth bullet penetrated her back. Still, she tried to get to safety. She had reached the door, but based on blood spatter and smears, it appeared that for a brief moment she had been able to escape, but had been yanked back into the home, where her murderer did not shoot her again, but beat her to death in the foyer. In that moment, she still managed to fight her attacker. She had broken all of her knuckles, and her hands were tremendously bruised. Her acrylic fingernails had been ripped off, and underneath them, the medical examiner would be able to collect foreign DNA. Around her body, absorbed in blood and blood spatter, there were thousands of pieces of tiny glass shards. Brandy Peters had been mercilessly brutalized. The blood spatter just about reached the top of the entryway's 10-foot ceilings, revealing the ferocity of the attack. Based on her injuries, she had been hit with the butt of a gun, a baseball bat, and a crowbar. It was incredible how hard this woman had fought, how much she endured and still continued to try and get back up. But as the video footage continued through the house, the reason why Brandy had fought so hard was clear. Her three children. Inside the hallway bathroom were the remains of all three of her children. They were found in a partially filled bathtub. The water that surrounded the six-year-old twins, Tamaya and Tanea, and their three-year-old half-brother Javante was tinged a sickening shade of red, 
from the blood that had spilled into it. The children had been stacked on top of each other, and it would later be determined that Tamaya had been shot while her sister and brother had been drowned as water had been found in their lungs. This is insane. I know. You've been speechless the whole time. I know. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't imagine the police responding to this. It is intense. You're dealing with children. You know, you're dealing with that scene's probably a disaster. Yeah, this has really been considered the worst thing to ever happen to Tallahassee. And that's even since the Bundy attacks that happened at FSU. Let me let me ask you a question. How do we know? Um, you, you mentioned the butt of a gun, a crowbar, and a bat. Is that things that they found in the home that were used? No, it's not based on what they found. But when the medical examiner is going to examine her body, they're going to determine that it's most likely weapons like that that had made the bruises and the cuts throughout her body. Okay, so this is something that the Emmy kind of figured yes. uh, were, were used. Okay. It is interesting, though. And it you... was a thirty-two that was used. Okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. I, I do find it very interesting, though, that the person, whoever did this, had a gun and still used some blunt objects to try to take her down, you know? And so many. And so many. So, like, are we dealing with multiple people or are we dealing with one person that were, was taking pleasure in torturing her? Because think about it. If this was a random attack with someone with a gun, they wouldn't take long to just shoot that person right you know i mean if she's being if she's defending herself in such a way like i think she obviously did here that person's going to then go for the gun right you know like wow this person's giving me such a hard time shot uh, you them know, six times right exactly and then continue to beat her like to death i find that very odd to have two like or multiple methods of killing somebody and you're using them all well in past episodes we've seen it happen both ways where we've seen multiple assailants use multiple weapons, but then we've also seen one assailant use multiple weapons. So sometimes it it just, I think the emotions have to do with it because this seems like a very rageful attack. So I think it has to do with how angry this person was or there was multiples. Yeah. One or the other. Right, one or the other. Not only that, but now you're dealing with the fact that they murdered these poor kids. Yes. In such a horrible way. Could this person have something against these children as well? Maybe. Like, are we? Was she a single mother? Yes. So, like, I mean, you know, first thing, uh, you know, as my detective mind put on my detective hat, I'm thinking, okay, maybe we need to look into um, the father and see if you know he had any kind of reason to do such a heinous act. Right. Because I mean, I mean, you know, people do things for and less. The children were killed. Yeah. So, like, was he trying to just take out everyone? That he felt slighted by? I don't know. But the, this crime scene is pretty crazy. Yeah, and I think that what might have happened and the reason why the children were in the bathroom was that might have been while they were where they were hiding while their mother was being attacked. Right, like maybe she told them to go in there to hide, maybe? Yeah. It's possible. So as you can imagine, it took a long while for the detective and the analysts to comprehend the scene before them. They were shocked. And they had many moments for the victims as they took time to mourn the lives of the family before them. However, they knew that although this was going to be one of the hardest cases that any of them had worked in their career, they knew that they had to continue with their work because those children 
and that mother deserve justice. Based on the scene itself, the detectives guessed that these murders had occurred sometime after dinner the day before. They came to that conclusion because some of the children were in their day clothes and the other was in their pajamas. Dinner had just finished because there was an open and partially eaten Chef Boyardee bowl on the counter. Love Chef Boyardee. I mean, it's the best. When I was a kid, it was great. I mean, the ravioli, ravioli, come on. Yes, even in college. Great. College nice too, snack. huh? Yeah. Really? Okay. Well, we were on a, we were on a budget. <laughs> in a heartbreaking detail, it also appeared that the twins had been doing their homework when the altercation broke out because their school supplies and books were upended in the living room. So it's almost like as the struggle began, they might have upended everything that they were, you know, working with or doing, and then they all headed for the bathroom. Okay, I see. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. It seemed like there had been a struggle in addition to the struggle between the attacker and Brandy, because the children's things in the living room were all over the place. And it was also noted that the phone in the living room area had been ripped from the wall. And the phone in Brandy's bedroom, the same thing had happened. So that meant that anyone within the house was unable to call for help. Is, now, is there a lot of distance between homes here? No, there's really not. Really? You know, I mean, that's pretty wild because you have to think if you're in a home and this is taking place, a neighbor might not be alert to that. Like, I find that odd. Six gunshots. Six gunshots. Yes. And the fact that. Yelling. There was yelling. Yeah. Like, this was a a major attack. Listen, we're talking about people fighting for their life. Mm -hmm. People are going to be yelling, screaming. They're going to be, you know, the gunshots, things breaking, kids screaming. I don't understand that. Now, there is a potential, because this happened on a Friday night, that maybe people weren't home. Like, it depends who her neighbors were. Were they people that were out or were they people that were home? But nobody reported hearing anything. So, I don't know. I, it's it's a very brazen thing to do. I just know that where we live, when, when our neighbor across the street closes her door to her car and lets two of her kids out, we hear it. We hear it and we look because it's an odd noise. It's like a very loud noise. And even though we've been here for years now and we hear it, we still open the blind, right? Yeah. Think about it. Any noise that is so out of place, we are very much alert to it. You would think Sounds that, echo. Right. So you would yeah. think that anyone would be alert to sounds of, of life and death. Yes, because I feel like there are times where you just even hear people talking on the phone in your neighborhood. So, like, if someone else is in their backyard and you're in yours, you hear it. Yeah. So, I, I, people not hearing this attack is something that I do find strange. Absolutely. In addition to that information, the investigators came to the conclusion that this had not been a robbery gone wrong. First, there had been no signs of a break-in, which was always a telltale sign that the victims knew their attacker. In addition to that, Brandy and her children did not lead a lavish lifestyle. She had been supporting three children on her own, and money was very tight. The house that she was in was rented through the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which is also known as Section 8 Housing. Brandy did a beautiful job maintaining the house, and her care and love was seen through the attention to detail that she paid to her children's rooms. 
She did not have much, but when she did have anything, she made sure that her children received it. The next step the detectives wanted to take was the one that they always did. They wanted to speak to the family and next of kin of their victims. And there was a few reasons why they wanted to do this. Um, They wanted to first inform them about their deaths, and they wanted to learn more about Brandy. Brandy's family was devastated. They were honest with police and said that Brandy had made some mistakes in her life, but that she was a good woman at heart. She had fittingly been born on Valentine's Day, and she was always sweet and loving. All of her family members told the detectives that if Brandy was anything, it was an amazing mother. She loved and took pride in the twins and her younger son. They were everything to her. Next, the detectives wanted to inform the fathers of the children that they had been murdered. It was not going to be an easy task. The father of six-year-old twins, Tamaya and Tanea, was 44-year-old Antonio Anthony. Anthony was very cooperative with the police. He and his family were devastated by the news of their loss. And when asked about his relationship with Brandy, he admitted that it had been hot and cold. One thing that he knew was that he was behind on child support. In total, he owed Brandy $23,000 in back support. And just four days before the murder, he had been ordered to pay $307 a month, a payment amount that had been worked out by the courts. The police asked Anthony many questions about Brandy as they were trying to get a sense of who she was from people other than her family. He answered all of their questions, and they didn't find anything to be suspicious about Anthony. Seriously? No. See, I beg to differ. Okay. I think that when you're dealing with having to pay money if you don't have a lot already, and now you're being told, hey, listen, you're like 20-something thousand dollars backed up. If you don't pay this, first of all, we're ordering you by the courts to pay this, and if you don't, we're going to take your license away and possibly put you in jail. And then you already don't have a lot of money. I feel like that's motive for murder. Well, think about the amount. It wasn't a lot. So Anthony was okay with it. He thought it was very fair that the courts were only ordering him to pay $307. Right. That's fair. And I'm just... In 2010. So yeah. It's a good deal. Absolutely. But I'm just trying to say it's still not out of the realm of possibility. I could still right. see it happening is what I'm trying to get at. I'm actually shocked. What? Because they're twins. So there's two children and $307, that's... Well, it's based on income. Yeah. You know, so like that that's all I'm trying to say. You don't know if this person's on hard times. Maybe that is a lot for him. And having two kids have it to try to, you know, give them the child support. Right. Could be enough. Could this be motive for that? I don't think that that's crazy. No, I agree. You know? But there was another father. Okay. As well. Three-year-old Javante's father was a man named Henry Segura. He was 31 years old. Now, the situation between Brandy Peters and Henry Segura was a bit of an interesting one. One, I do not believe we will ever get the full story on because it's one of those very complicated relationships. Well, first when told about his beautiful son having been murdered, Segura really had no reaction. He, when asked about his non-reaction, 
to the news that his three-year-old son had been drowned and his mother brutally beaten, he said two things. He said first that he had already kind of known that something happened because when he took his son to get his hair braided that morning, so that Saturday morning, he the woman that had been braiding his son's hair said that Brandy Peters had been found dead and her children murdered. So that's how he found out? That's how he found out. But he still wasn't reacting. Like, you'd still expect a reaction. And he said that, like, the way he was raised, he was not supposed to ever show emotion. And that's why he didn't. And we've also seen that before. I think the one thing that we have to keep in the back of our minds here, in this case, I feel so far, is the beating is very personal. Like, yeah. super per- more More than anything else, the beating is personal. But also... The damage that that person would have sustained because she fought and she had to have done damage to this person regardless. So we have to look for any kind of indicator of any kind of damage on these two men. We have to see about possible motives. And then also we have to see about her job and and to see if uh, there was anybody that she was in contact with that would have some kind of like vendetta against her. Did she owe anybody money? Was there any kind of problems with that? She didn't owe anyone money and everything seemed to be really good with her job. So there really didn't seem to be any issues there. Wow. Okay. Uh, One complication that she had presently in her life was that she had a Grand Prix, a car that was broken. So what was happening was she was using her mother's car to get to and from work. But her mother's car had also broken down for the past few weeks before the murder. So she had a really hard time finding like transportation. So right after Segura telling the police about, you know, why he didn't have a reaction, the police began to ask him questions about his relationship with Brandy and what she had been like. And he explained that they were a very on-again, off-again couple, despite the fact that he was married. Oh, so he was married. He's still married. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So this is a bit of a complicated relationship. And I'm going to try and decipher it the best ways that, you know, have been revealed through interviews. But I think we have to kind of read between the lines here a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So Segura explained that the two had been at a gas station in Tallahassee, and that's where they met four years prior. Now, he has been married to his wife at this point in 2010 for 12 years So when he meets Brandy, he's already been married for eight years. And right away, they began dating. And he said from the very beginning that Brandy had known that he was married, but they continued on with their relationship anyway. He described Brandy as being a spunky person, that she was funny, down to earth, and very sweet. His wife, Malika, found out pretty quickly that he had been having an affair especially because just months after the two meeting and beginning to sleep together, Brandy became pregnant with Javante. Now, this is where things are going to get pretty complicated. Because during this time period, Segura... Now, Segura also has two children with his wife, and he shares another child with another woman that also was conceived during his marriage. And... His wife gets pregnant for a third time, and unfortunately, it was a premature birth, and that child did not make it. 
And his wife, Malika, was very upset by this. And it was something that was devastating to the couple. And this is kind of when she's very honest with him, meaning Malika. And she tells him, I can't, like, take this anymore. I know that you're having these affairs. It's terrible. Like, I need it to stop. This was heartbreaking for our family. And he makes this agreement to stop doing what he was doing. Because at this point, he's kind of really between two relationships with his wife. Like, he's living two lives, one with his wife and one with Brandy. He's claiming that he goes over the house. He helps with the children. It's kind of like he's the father at that house and he's then the father at his own house. And this is right around the time where Javante is like four or five months old and he tells Brandy that he has to cut off the relationship. Now, self-admittedly, later on, Henry Segura is going to explain that he only remained faithful to his wife for a few months. But he kind of only kept it friendly but would occasionally sleep with Brandy like he didn't enter again into a relationship with her but he was having affairs with other women well I mean let's face it I mean it seems like Henry had you know one foot in and one foot out right and he kind of wanted the advantages of being with multiple women I mean listen he's fathered children with other women and you know, you are responsible to a to a degree, you oh, know, obviously, yeah. you know, so I'm sure that, you know, his wife is not happy. She just lost her child. Well, at the yes. And that, I think, adds this complication between Malika and Brandy because Malika had lost a child and Brandy had a child that was four or five months old. So I think that she understood that her well, she knew that her husband was having an affair with multiple people. But the thing with Brandy really bothered her because she had the son almost that she lost. Right. Now, you cannot sit here and tell me that there is no resentment there, which okay. is why I'm putting her now on my list of suspects. Oh, Malika's going on your list. Yeah. Okay. She's gone on my list because there is not one woman out there that would tolerate their husband or a boyfriend or whatever, cheating on them with multiple women, fathering multiple children with other women, and then just staying with me. Oh, and by the way, the child that we were supposed to have just died. I know. It's that so sad. is kind of crazy, but it also opens my eyes up to something else. Could we be dealing with woman versus woman in that house? And that's why things were so like destroyed in the house. And then finally it resorted to gunshots and then the 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 physical beating is what's super personal which could come from the wife so i'm putting her on my suspect list but i won't talk about it anymore until later do do you think as a woman who lost their child that she would be able to do that to three others i think that there are people out there that would feel so much anger from henry right that's his name henry or henry yeah like you know that she I could see someone doing it. Yeah. You know, like you robbed like me to of a breaking point. Exactly. You robbed me of my, ch- my child and my future and my husband and everything. This is what I'm going to do to you and take everything away from you. So I don't think that that's crazy, but 
like I said. It is totally a, a potential. We have a few people here. But it's also just not Malika who is upset with Segura at this point. Brandy's also really upset, too, because, remember, he was kind of a constant fixture within her household, and then he stopped. Right. And that was something that bothered her. And it was around that time that she started, like, making jabs at him. Now, up until this point, the custody agreement was, you know, like, when he would come by, she would ask him for a couple hundred dollars, and he would give it to her here or there. And... She would then, when he was making this agreement to kind of go back with his wife and then later when he goes on with other girlfriends, she would call him and ask him to come over or do something or be a part of the kids' lives. And he would say that he he couldn't make it. And when he would do that, she would throw these jabs at him. Well, Javante's got another dad anyway. You know, like making him feel and question the paternity of Javante. Okay, I can see that being triggering. <laughs> right, so that's yeah. going to add a lot of complications. So similar to her situation with Anthony, Brandy was also having a hard time getting Segura to pay child support for Javante. In just three years, Segura was already behind $20,000 in child support. He explained to the detectives that it had been hard for him to make payments. He also had to make payments for another child that he had, that lived in Orlando. And he said he was in a similar situation with that child's mother that he also owed around $20,000. So he was in a complicated situation. Also, that past July, he had been shot. So because he was shot, he wasn't able to work. And he was a journeyman um, welder. That's oh, okay. what he did. And that's a pretty good job. Well, I mean, not necessarily. When I did the uh, the average pay, it was like between forty two thousand to fifty eight thousand a year. Oh, okay. So it's different up here. Yeah, you know what? I have to not try to equate it to the, to it, the it's union so jobs different. up yeah, here. Because I mean, a union welder up here. Oof. I mean, I mean, I would love that. I mean, they're probably making over six figures easy. Right. And that's just like base. It's different in Florida. Yeah, and, I know. And he would sometimes try to work in Georgia if he could get work up there. But there was a situation that past July where his cousin had got into some altercation with some people and kind of asked him to come support him. And he went to support his cousin and it turned into kind of like a shootout. And he had been shot in the chest just a few inches below his heart. That's crazy. Yeah, so because he was recovering from that, he hadn't been able to work, which is what made, not to say he he was back child support even before this incident, but it was making it continuously hard for him to pay child support. Now, in that incident, he was firing a thirty two handgun. Okay, that's, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. That's a really big deal that we have to keep in mind. Okay, yes. so this guy literally has the gun that was used, well... The same kind of gun that was used in the commission of the crime. Right. So keep okay. that keep that in your back pocket. It's in my back pocket. So in total, Henry Segura had four children. Two sons with his wife, Javante, and a child that lived in Orlando. And actually when asked in the interview with detectives how many kids he had, this was his exact response. Let me see. Two, three, four, three now. It just seemed very callous. Like, that's so strange to do. 
Yes. His interview was very bizarre and we'll get a little further into. He seemed very jovial in his interview. Later, he's going to say it's because he was uncomfortable, but we'll get into it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I understand some people deal with emotion differently, but like that's just a weird thing to make like a little joke like, yeah. you know, about your kid that just died. That's in bad taste, number one. And secondly, really weird, man. Right, same day. Yeah. So he also, like Anthony, had been ordered to pay a fixed monthly amount. But because of his salary or, you know, like based on his like tax records, he had to pay a lot more. Also because like... It goes by, like, how much back pay there is, but also, like, how old the child is. So, like, Anthony had been back paid, like, he was on back pay 23000 but that was over six years. Whereas he was on back pay of 20000 already, and Javante was only three. So, meaning this number is going to get bigger and bigger, so they have to pull it a larger sum out of his paycheck. So that amount was $818 a month. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And I did the math because he also owed a similar amount to for the child in Orlando. So, I mean, we're talking about two-thirds of his pay after taxes being taken away. He definitely should owe that because Brandy has been bearing the responsibility of all three of her children as a single working mother, which is so hard to do. But it's just like if the police are looking for motive, that would be a motive. Which is what I said before because right. it's true. And I, and by the way, I'm in agreement with you, of course. I mean, listen, you father a child. You, if you can't be in the picture, fine. But at least support them financially because they need things. So, I mean, that's just the, the thing that you do. I mean, come on. But right. I can get how that can build some resentment and be why you would be bitter. Right. And create I, animosity. Yes. Especially when the relationship is not good. So Segura, because he seemed to have more of a dynamic relationship with Brandy than Anthony did, was asked when the last time he saw Brandy was. He said that he had been at her house two days before the murders took place and that when he was at her house that he had been telling her about his gunshot wound and how he couldn't work and how that was difficult for him to make payments. And he said that... um she was very understanding about that and that they had had kind of like a good visit. So when asked for his alibi, he said that he had been at his house. They asked him if that could be verified. And he very enthusiastically said, like, yeah, my wife was home, but it's but it's better to just check my cell phone because the GPS will tell you where I was the whole time and I was home. So Segura had offered up his phone and the detectives were able to see that based on the GPS location of that phone, that he had been home that afternoon and night, as he said he had been. The detectives also spoke to Malika because he had claimed that his wife had been at home with him. Plus, they kind of wanted to get a feel for her. I'm assuming their thought process went where yours did. She definitely has a vendetta against this woman who had died. So let's see. So Malika backed up her husband's claim that the two of them had been together that night. However, she did admit that she had been really sick that day and that she had taken a ton of medication. Because of her being sick and needing to go rest and not wanting to get her husband sick as well, she slept in a different bedroom than Henry Segura that night. Malika claimed that she had seen Segura when she went to sleep. 
And the detectives asked her if she would have known if her husband would have left the house that night. And she said she would have known if he left because the house was armed. So if someone leaves, it makes a shrill sound. So she would have known. But he could have just as easily disarmed the house. I mean, I think there's a lot of loopholes in that. I mean, for one, I mean, you could just lie for the person that needs you to, right? I mean, this is your husband. Right. And also, like you just said, I mean, yeah, you could disarm it. Maybe you were just so, you were asleep and you were in deep sleep. You didn't hear it go off. I mean, it's not like it's a blaring sound. Right. It might just be like a boop, boop, you know, like a little noise it makes. You show how you, you know, you can't be so sure that you're not going to hear it. I think she was trying to protect him. I think so, too. Yeah, and I think that she may be, there's no love lost between her and Brandy. So I can't imagine she feels tremendous, you know, guilt at the fact that this woman lost her life. I agree. But that's me making assumptions. Right. I mean, this is all just kind of hearsay. Okay. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break because I feel like we need a break after a pretty heavy first half hour of this show. And we're going to hear from our sponsor of today's show, HelloFresh. We are so excited to bring you an offer from America's number one meal kit. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Now is the perfect time to take the pressure off and kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part and you get to take the credit. It does not end with just dinners though. You can also stock your fridge with easy breakfast, quick lunches, and fresh snacks. Just shop HelloFresh Market and add any of these tasty time-saving solutions to your weekly box. We love using HelloFresh. Not only does it take the guesswork out of what's for dinner, but it also takes me out of my comfort zone in the kitchen and teaches me how to cook new things that have now become some of our favorite go-to meals. The convenience and quality of HelloFresh is unmatched, and we get excited every time we know the delivery is coming. So try America's number one meal kit today and go to HelloFresh.com slash 50TCC. And use code 50TCC for 50% off plus 15% off for the next two months. That's an amazing deal. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash 50TCC. And use code 50TCC for 50% off plus 15% off for the next two months. Okay, let's get back to the show. So although it was on shaky grounds, the alibi seemed to check out, but the detectives wanted to bring him in for a more formal interview. They had a few objectives in this interview. First, they wanted to talk about his wife, and next they hoped to get a DNA sample. Your wife, they said, must really not like Brandy, which implied that they were toying around with the idea that potentially Malika had grown tired of her husband going over to Brandy's house. And she, as unfortunately so oftentimes happened, took it out on Brandy. Segura said that no, his wife certainly did not like Brandy much, but that she wouldn't have killed her, and she especially would not have killed her children. They kept asking him questions about Brandy and the son that they shared together. And the interview, which I've seen, like, 
a very like the whole thing is basically recorded. I'm going to put the YouTube link up. It's like four hours of footage. And it was, I guess what I would consider slightly disturbing because Segura seems to be very lighthearted in the interview. He seemed to be doing a lot of joking and laughing. And I know that people deal with grief or maybe feeling uncomfortable differently, but he had just heard that his three-year-old son had been drowned days prior. And even though his relationship with Brandy was complicated, he knew her for 10 years. And the way that she had been beaten to death, that has to affect you. I mean, it hasn't even been 48 hours. So I don't know. It just seemed like there was something wrong and that he should have been a little bit more haunted about what happened because that is the perfect way to describe like I've seen a lot of interviews with parents that have lost children and that's the only way to describe them is that they seem haunted I think that everyone processes everything differently if you're dealing with it being quiet or not you know or just where the emotions kind of gone then when you're looking at that person, it looks like the soul has just been like ripped from them. Right. You know, it's it's not like trying to make jokes or being a little sarcastic, a little snarky, whatever you want to call it. That is not the same thing. So even though I am acknowledging the fact that people do handle it differently, there's still another element there, like another layer to that whole ordeal. Right. It seems a little suspect. Yeah. So Segura was asked whether or not he knew who would do this to Brandy. And he said that he didn't know. It was at this point in the interview that the detectives noticed that he had a cut by his pinky finger. So they asked him if he would be willing to take off his shirt and show them if he had any injuries on himself. He agreed to do so. And when they removed his shirt, they didn't really find anything he the only thing he had he had a cut by his pinky and he had a little a tiny scratch on his arm but everything else was kind of clear and as they were taking pictures he's joking and he says like are these going to be used against me but despite the fact that that's his tone i think that that's really interesting because brandy had fought for her life and sustained a lot of injuries and all of her knuckles were broken so it, if he did do this, it's surprising that there's no marks on him. That's true, I guess. I mean, the thing on his pinky, though, is odd. But I mean, I guess that could be anybody. They could have bumped into something and cut themselves. So I guess you're right. I mean, with the amount of damage that she sustained, and he doesn't have much on it, just a scratch and a little cut. Right. It doesn't really, I mean, it kind of works against the theory that he did it. But could he have been wearing some kind of glove that, maybe protected you know his hands a little bit better or maybe a, a, a sweatshirt or something it is november so yeah. potentially he like could just have been something that could stuff. have softened the blow so that he didn't sustain injury right and she, obviously she did not i don't know but it's good that they at least have the pictures just in case if it does come up right exactly so at the end of the interview segura also voluntarily gave a sample of his dna hoping i'm sure that this would make the police think that he hadn't been the one to commit the murders. The detectives felt like there had been something off with Segura, but they wanted to continue their investigation and not become one-track-minded. The next thing they wanted to look further into were letters that they had found at the crime scene. 
Based on what was found, it appeared as if there had been a correspondence taking place between Brandy and an inmate at the Federal Detention Center in Tallahassee. The man's name that she had been writing to was Carlos James Santos. Santos had addressed the letters to Brandy Santos, the implication obviously being that he wanted to marry her. So there's a love connection here. Wow, okay, okay. Santos had been described as Brandy's one-time boyfriend. He signed the letter, Your Husband, Carlos, Lord of Lords. And this um, is true. He had been a part of, I get a group that um, is known as the Vice Lords, which does work with a drug trafficking organization, a cartel. So he had been in a gang. But when he signed his name, Carlos, Lord of Lords, he then added below that despite writing that, he had not been in a street gang in some time. That's important. Remember that. Well, the detectives were certainly going to look into this. And the detectives found out that Santos was a known drug dealer, and he had been identified as a member of the vice lords that were associated with a drug trafficking organization known as the Los Datas Cartel, which has been referred to as the fourth most dangerous and powerful drug cartel in the world and works out of Mexico. Now, now this opens up other doors. Could... They they do drug trafficking for the cartel, so they okay. help with the assistance of getting their drugs into Florida. Gotcha. But see, now this opens up other possibilities. Could it's he have true. found out maybe that she was, you know, still talking to her, you know, ex-boyfriends and stuff like that? Maybe. You know, who knows? Well, the letters between Santos and Brandy were flirty, and Carlos often confessed his undying love. But what a man says in prison and says when he gets out are two different things. A fact that I've learned time and time again while watching Love After Lockup. You would. It's true. You it's would. different. Like what they say while well, they're on the inside because they're lonely, they want attention. So like it's just kind of like par for the course. And sometimes people like hearing those things. So they write letters to people that are in jail and then they end up on shows, which I love to watch. <laughs> you do love to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one working theory that the detectives thought could be a possibility was that maybe Santos owed a debt to someone and they murdered the person that he loved on the outside. But this theory didn't seem to hold too much weight because the relationship was not something that Brandy seemed 100% invested in based on her letters and the fact that she didn't really talk about him to anybody and the fact that there had been no breaking or entering and the death of the children was also involved. It's just to the detectives, they felt like this was not like a cold hit that was put out. It was more of an emotional, personal thing that took place based on their decades of experience in law enforcement. And I think they're onto something. I think they're right. I think that this would have been easily something that could have sidetracked them, you know, or, or you know, put them down a road where now the investigation's taking a horrible turn and we're not looking into maybe the more likely of suspects. Well, unfortunately, this is going to continue to sidetrack them because it definitely comes back up. Damn. But just because the detectives were analyzing the clues found at the home, it didn't mean they did not have time to learn more about Henry Segura. In doing some digging, they found out that Segura 
had many girlfriends in addition to Brandy. Because although I've revealed Segura's dating history to you all lovely people, the police didn't know it because he didn't admit that he had been having affairs with other people. So they wanted to speak with these other women and they gave the detectives some very interesting details. One fascinating detail was that Henry Segura had more than one phone. Oh, is that why he was so willing to give his phone of his location? Yep. Oh, man. Okay. So he had his primary phone that his wife knew about, but there was also another phone, a phone that he used only to talk to his other girlfriends. Seems like Henry Segura had lied to the police. So as you can imagine, the detectives wanted to speak to him again. Imagine that. Imagine you are a guy and you literally have a side you literally have a side chick phone. That is so much pressure and stress. I don't know how people do that. Dude, that's enough to like I send you to the with, ER. I have a problem with one life and I have no kids. <laughs> yeah, like I could never do that. I listen, you do what you want. I'm just saying that me, I could never do that. Not only because it's wrong, oh, thanks, but also just because like I I I would it's too much stress. I'd probably have a heart attack. Yeah. You just, you're about the video I'm, game life. Exactly. I'm not about, that's, ba- that's I'm your not a, mistress. Yeah. Like I'm not about the side chick phone. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good with my computer and my lovely wife. Oh, thanks. Or, you know, <laughs> not in no particular order. <laughs> well, you know what is crazy that this man thought that he was going to be able to lie to the police about this because the second phone wasn't his name. Like they were going to find out, dude. That's crazy. Yeah. So in the second interview with police, the demeanor of Henry Segura completely changed. He was upset this time that the detectives had gone and spoken to his girlfriends. He said that they knew nothing about his relationship with Brandy, so they should have never been contacting them. But it really seemed like someone didn't like having his spot blown up and that his wife would definitely find out about this. The detectives told him that they were sorry for exposing things, but they promised that in their investigation into these murders that they would leave no stone unturned. They promised him that they were going to continue looking into his life, but they also promised him that they were talking to a lot of people and also talking to the people that they knew too. Like they said, as as invasive as we're being with you, we're being invasive with other people. We're going down a lot of avenues, but you're the one who lied to us about this phone. So you might want to talk to us. In like a badass detective moment, the lead investigator said to him, I need to do everything. Your child and his mother are dead. I need to know everything about you. I need to know what makes you tick. And to that, Segura only responded that nothing would make him tick enough to kill Brandy and her kids. Now that statement to me is interesting because I find his choice of words a little revealing. He didn't say his kid. He said, nothing could make me tick enough to kill Brandy and her kids. And like, this is a guy who was saying like, oh, I was almost like a father to the twins too. I got them ready for school, took them to school. Well, you're not, you're distancing yourself from not only them, but your own son. Is he doing this because maybe he feels guilty or because he was never close with them to begin with and he was lying again to detectives? I know it's weird and the timing and the verbiage is really bad, but listen, I feel like some people do say that. Like, 
I remember when my dad would be mad at me if I did something really, really bad, he would say to my mom, your son did this. Well, everyone does right, that. Exactly. So like, I know it's not the same, but it's, there's some similarity to that. Well, in it's, this moment, yeah. he wouldn't be mad at Javante. No, he's you would just think distancing he'd want to himself. Be, he wouldn't want to distance himself. Like, that was my son. Like, if he really wanted to endear himself to detectives, he would be emotional about his son. In any way that he could. Right. And he's not doing it. Exactly. And I think that you bring up a good point. With him distancing himself emotionally, that almost makes me feel like he's more guilty. Right. Right. So you're coming around. I'm coming around. So at this point, they asked him if there was anything he wanted to come clean about, that they would give him the opportunity to set the record straight. And eventually, after some pressing, he admitted that he did have a second phone that he used to talk to his girlfriends with, and that he had, at times, communicated with Brandy with that phone. But he still stuck to his alibi that he had been at his house during the time of the murders. He said again that he had not gone to Brandy's house the day of the murders, and he was very adamant about that. He seemed to be worked up, so the detectives let him go on. He said that he had been reading things on the internet, stupid stuff, like he had a key, like he wanted to kill her because of the back child support, and that his wife didn't know about her. All this stuff, he said, and it's not true. And he seemed really agitated about this, that the public was kind of like turning on him. Well, maybe there's because there's some truth there. And you know what? Check the towers. Ping. Let's see the pings on the towers. That might give us a, a good idea about that side chick phone. If we know that that phone was somewhere around the tower close to her home, then we know. Dude. You're lying. You're lying. Well, it's so interesting you say that because the detectives had already known about Segura's second phone because they had talked to his girlfriends 10 days before this. And they knew that the number was under his name. So they had a subpoena drawn up and they had looked into his cell phone records and they received him the day that they brought him in for the interviews. They let him know that the records indicated that on the night of the murders, it showed that he was at Brandy's house. Oh, come on, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. It also, and we'll get into it later, revealed that he had called Brandy multiple times the day of the murder, five times to be exact. And they were on the phone between those five phone calls a little over an hour. And when he dialed Brandy's phone number, he didn't dial it. He pressed star six, seven, and then called Brandy's phone number. Oh, so he was trying to be like conspicuous. Yeah, he was hiding his number. And when police asked, why were you hiding your number from Brandy? He said, well, I didn't want her to have the number of my second phone because she's the kind of person that blows up your phone. So he was hiding this number from her. And um, there was one text message that was received from Brandy that said like, oh, you're going to hang up on me. Implying that they were fighting on the day of the murder. Which also kind of breathes more life into the fact that he did this. Right. But that is something they're not going to find out until later. But another interesting thing, though, that that I'm, I'm just thinking about now, now that we know that he has two phones, not only was it planned to get let the cops see the other phone, 
but also it shows that is there some planning involved to leave the other phone behind? Mm, because that's premeditation. Yes, exactly. Because I mean, I know people that have two phones. I mean, I you know technically I have another phone because I have a work phone, oh, and I always guys care. we might be finding something out on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, I don't have a side chick phone, um, <laughs> but I. But I have two phones, and I always carry both of them, at least, you know, for working hours. But, you know, usually people do that. So was it planned to leave the other phone and bring the other one? Well, maybe this is a tactic that he does with his wife when he goes out to meet another woman, is that he leaves his phone at home to be like, oh, look, see, I'm not doing anything shady. Well, that could be it, too. Yeah. Yeah. So they say your phone records indicate you were at Brandy's house the night of the murders, And they ask him again, what were you doing on Friday night? And he continued to deny the fact that he had been at her house. He said, like posed as a question, I was there Friday. How do you figure? And the detective let him know that they had evidence that proved he was there. The detective went on to say that they, he's like, we have to get past the fact that you're lying. Like, we know that you're lying. Just come clean We know you were there. But he said adamantly that he wasn't there. He didn't understand what was happening. And he kept saying, like, I didn't kill Brandy and I didn't kill her kids. At this point in the interview, the detectives tried to switch tactics. They tried to make him feel like they were on his side, that they understood where he was coming from. They were basically saying, like, what did Brandy do to make you so mad? We heard how she can be. I mean, look at it. She's getting into other people's marriages. She only cared about herself, not what other people are going through. And obviously, they don't believe this. Their goal is to solve this murder for Brandy and her children and their families. But they're trying to say this to make Segura feel comfortable enough to speak with them about what really happened. Like, here they are commiserating about all how difficult women could be. But Segura didn't fall for it. He denied it all. He knew what was happening. And that was when they said they wanted to talk about the child support issue that he had brought up earlier. And the reason why they wanted to bring this up again, because he hadn't said this in the first interview, that 10 days since their initial interview with Segura, the detectives learned that Brandy and Segura had a lot of arguments about child support, actually, because they reached out to other people and learned this. They also learned that Segura had just received documentation that because he was so behind on child support, that the state of Florida was going to begin garnishing his wages. So that's a huge difference between you're ordered to pay this and your wages being garnished because they're just taken out of your paycheck. Right. And that affects his livelihood. It affects him being able to pay his bills or whatever Mm -hmm. in his eyes, I'm sure. And also... That's going to affect his wife as well. Right. And their two children. And their two children. Because it's like robbing, you know, she, I'm sure the wife would look at it like, you fathered this kid. And, and now you're taking food out of food the mouth of, of your other, children. Exactly. Yep. Thanks, Kaylee. You're welcome. I know what you're saying. Yeah. And I just, I think that this is interesting because initially you would think, oh, maybe it's Anthony the guy that fathered the twins because he had just been ordered to take out the 307 and Segura was ordered back in September. But since September, because he wasn't working, because he had been shot, 
He hadn't been making the $800 payments. So that's why the state of Florida was soon to start garnishing his wages. So that was found out just 10 days before the murder. Now, right. this is interesting because remember, he said he went over to Brandy's house a few days before the murder. So he went over there and I guess they were talking about the fact that he had been shot and that he couldn't really make the payments. And when he left, Brandy sent him a text message saying, you know, you looked really good. If you weren't the father of my child, I might like try to get with you, like basically um, flirting with him. And then that is going to initiate him into beginning to flirt back with her. And they hadn't had this like flirty relationship in a while. It had been kind of a little tumultuous. And that is why he's saying he went there on Friday, that he went to go have sex with her. And that he claims the way the night went down is that he showed up while the kids were playing outside. He had sex with Brandy on her bed. Um, he used a condom. He believed she flushed it down the toilet. I know it's a lot of details. I'm sorry, guys. And then they went onto the couch in the living room and they were watching a movie. The children came in. And while they were watching a movie, he was texting his other girlfriend. That's crazy. This is a family man. So, And he said he left after that. Okay. That's what he is claiming happened. Now that he has to admit the fact that he was at Brandy's house the night of the murder. So he's saying that the murders happened after he left. Another thing the detectives brought up was that Brandy definitely would make Segura really mad by like saying, you have to pay me my money or you're going to go to jail. But I mean, I don't know. I don't find that. Ta that's just really a fact now. <laughs> Since yeah. he's been ordered this to pay this money, he kind of has to do that. And that's why his wages became garnished. But the fact of the matter is that this was totally different from the first interview. When Segura had explained at first to the detectives that he had been cool with Brandy and she told him, oh, don't worry, you can pay whenever you want. So what's the reality of what's really happening? And why was he lying so much? Was he lying because he didn't want to reveal that there were really, really crazy tensions between the two of them? And at this point, he knew the detectives were going in hard on him. And it's about four hours into the interview. And he no longer wants to cooperate. So at this point, he says he wants to get a lawyer and the detectives end the interview. But it is at this stage of the investigation that something really strange happened. Based on the letters that they found at the house, the detectives wanted to talk to James Carlos Santos and see what had really been going on between him and Brandy. Well, he had quite the tale to tell. He stated that from his prison cell, he was in control of a large drug-running organization and that Brandy had been a part of it. Oh, no. So now he's claiming that she is with, like, with him on this. Helping him run drugs. Hmm. I don't think that she would put her kids in jeopardy by doing this. And, like, they would be living a little better, don't you think? Well, that's another thing. She'd I mean, have a I mean, car at least. I'm not trying to, I'm not talking crap. I'm just saying, think about it. If she is doing this, she wouldn't be in Section 8 housing. 
she wouldn't be getting support like that. I I, I don't I don't know. I, I don't think so. I will get into it. Yeah. Because it is a very interesting claim. So he claimed that she had been running drugs for him and that for the past few months he knew that she had been skimming cocaine from him and cash. He said that he had to be harsh and swift with the consequences of such an offense or else the cartel would come down hard on him. So he ordered to have her and her family killed. That's wild. I mean, that is crazy that he is admitting to that Mm -hmm. while already being in prison, by the way. Well, could it be true? Because the two did know each other. I mean, it was something that was pretty intense. So... The later claim that Santos is going to make is that he had hired someone to commit the crime, that that person then is going to enlist the help of other people. And one of those people the police spoke to and that man did say like, oh, yeah, we were involved in that murder and a woman helped us. And so basically, in the end, they said that seven people went to that house. I don't know. I don't believe it. I don't believe it because you don't think – I mean, I know – well, technically, none of the neighbors heard all the sounds, but – Seven people beating up one person, someone would hear it. That's my first problem with it. Yeah. Someone would have heard this attack because it would have been loud. And someone would have seen it, seven people going into a really small house. I mean, it's like a gathering of sorts. It, I mean, you're going to see people – go seven people going into yes, a house. Especially in a neighborhood where the clo- houses are close together – And it is a tight-knit community, okay? So that's one thing I think is weird. Um, The other thing that I think is weird is if there were seven people, Brandy would have died right away. It wouldn't have been a fight like that. Yeah, no way. No way. They would have just taken her out right away. Whoever did this, it was more like a – almost like a torture kind of thing. I mean, it could have been ended right away, but it wasn't. No. A seven against one? She's not going to have broken knuckles. You don't even have a shot with seven people. Right. I'm sorry. So the detective reflected and did some digging. Upon looking at the letters again, they felt like it was, they were just love letters. That nothing else beyond that was happening. And if she was running drugs for him, that there would have been more to talk about in those letters. And the mentioning, like maybe the mentioning of other people or code words being used And it just seemed like the way that he was writing in the letters, there was no reason that he would, A, have her running drugs or kill her because it just didn't seem like that kind of relationship. It was just like a weird, corny, like, prison conversation. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll read you some of the stuff this guy wrote. Okay, yeah, I actually want to hear. He's a maniac. He's all over the place. Okay. <laughs> there's, like, he writes a letter, but then there's, like, stuff in the margins or stuff on the envelope. Like, it's all over the place. So, on one of the envelopes, he writes, death before dishonor, which is just, like, a, a very random thing to write. I'm going to start writing that on, like, my tests for the kids. Like, Don't just, do that. Death before dishonor. <laughs> In another, he wrote, I thank God for you and ask that you look after you and our three angels. So he's like saying, like, I want to marry you. I want to be the father to your kids. And then he writes on the envelope. I can't even say this out loud. Dear Mr. Mailman, if this letter happens to get lost, send it to heaven because it's going to an angel. Okay, dude. (laughs) 
Then he wrote, word is bond, bond is life, and a man should give his life before his word fails. So say what you mean and mean what you say. It just didn't seem like a conversation that would happen between like someone who was running drugs for somebody else. Right. It's not like you're looking into these letters and it's like the imitation game where it's like they're trying to decipher you know, like decipher code, code game. Yeah, no. Yes. Yeah. Like we were saying, oh, the sky was really nice. Like it was really good weather today and that could mean something. That wasn't the way the letters were. It written. seemed like he was like he was confessing his love for her and Correct. all these affirmations. Yeah, I mm-hmm. that's not the same thing. So in addition to that, the detectives found out that Santos had claimed responsibility for many murders while he was in prison. Okay, so this isn't new for him. Okay. Yeah. And he had been evaluated by a psychiatrist who stated that he was delusional, a pathological liar, and should not be trusted. They believed it was a dead end and an attempt by someone who knew Brandy to get attention, which unfortunately does happen during murder investigations, especially because that person is locked up in federal prison and getting this attention means that he's going to get interviews and may possibly be brought out of prison for a visit. Like if they have to ever say like, okay, where's the body located or something like that. Yes. I mean, so essentially it's like, you know, a field trip out of prison. Right. Or he wanted to get special favors and get things that, you know, he couldn't get in prison. So by this time, all of the results from the test run on the evidence and swabs at Brandy's house came back. There were two things that interested the detectives. First, there was a possible match on the swab that was used to test the phone wire that had been ripped out of the wall in Brandy's room. The swab came back as a possible match for a convicted felon that was known to be a drug dealer. Interesting. That is interesting. Another DNA match was found in the bathroom. You know how sometimes bathtubs have like, there's like a bar, there's like a a little bar that you can use to like bring yourself up out of the bathtub with? Yeah. Henry Segura's DNA was found on that bar, which was, of course, right next to the children's bodies. That's a big deal. Yeah. The detectives looked into the known drug dealer to see where he was located so they could speak with him. They discovered that the man resided in Italy. What? And had been there for some time. He's a known associate of the cartel. Okay. So they have the money to travel, unlike us. Unlike us. (laughs) The detectives contacted the FBI, who then contacted the U.S. Embassy in Rome so agents could speak with him and find out his connection with Brandy. The man contacted and agreed to meet with the FBI agents at the embassy. He told them that he had been in Rome for some time, and then he willingly gave another DNA sample. He said, I I wasn't there the night of the murder. The fact that this was a partial match troubled the analysts and the detectives. So they decided to run this sample against the sample from the crime scene and then put the sample from the crime scene through CODIS. And it was discovered that the man in Rome and four other men who were in CODIS popped up as possible matches. So they now this is really interesting because this is going to come up again that it's really hammered home that there was this man who's associated with the cartel and his DNA was at Brandy's house. And in reality, 
um, DNA experts are going to come forward and say the sample was too small or had like just deteriorated so much over time that it connected with a lot of people. Right, because it's uh, essentially at that point, it's a partial piece of evidence, which means it's a partial match, right? Right. So when you have DNA matches, you want like it's like one in 500 million, you know, and this is like a smaller possibility that it could be that person. Like there's a possibility it could have been a lot of people. So someone wouldn't get convicted from that DNA match. Okay. And that's going to become a point of contention later. It's also important to note that Brandy's renting this home. So when they do swab for DNA, they get so many different DNA things come up. Right. Over 200. 200? Yes. I mean, I guess that makes sense, though. I mean, it could be people that, you know, came and went that rented before. Or came over to visit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot. And she did often have a lot of family come over. So the detectives, with the DNA match on the bathtub and Segura's phone placing him at the house, it all made detectives think that he had been the one that had been responsible for Brandy's murder and the murder of her three children, one of them being his son. They also thought it was suspicious that he had texted her and called her the day of the murder and that it seemed like the two of them had been in an argument. They also believed that receiving that paper that stated his wages would be garnered was something that pushed him over the edge. They figured that if he was thinking that if he had to kill Brandy to get out of it, then there was probably some rage mixed up in there because of this very complicated situation, and it did seem like a rageful attack. Then he had to kill his son. Because if he didn't kill his son... He would still owe the child support to whomever took over custody of Javante after Brandy's death. And then, because the twins were there, he couldn't leave them as witnesses. It was tragic, but to the detectives, it seemed like the only scenario that made sense. Another detail that further made them believe that this is what happened was the fact that they didn't think he had planned to kill the twins at all that he knew, and it was a common occurrence, that that night, as they did many Fridays, Tamaya and Tanea were supposed to be staying at their grandmother's house. So they technically weren't even supposed to be home. That's really sad. Yeah. Based on all of this information, the district attorney was comfortable with the detectives placing Henry Segura under arrest 10 months after the murders had taken place. I mean, I think that that is a, is a pretty good assessment. Like, I mean, think about everything that you have. You know, you have a potential motive. You know that he was there uh, that day at some point. You know, you knew that they were arguing. Like, there's a lot right. here. There's a lot. There's, there's conflicts between his wife and that he's cheating on his wife with this woman. You know, he's back and forth. Like, there's a lot here. So I think that the detectives are in the right direction. I mean, hopefully this pans out and we get some justice for these kids and this poor woman. But I think they're on the right track. I agree. I think it's a sad reality, but I think it's the reality that makes the most sense. Yeah, definitely. But if they were going to try and take this to trial, the district attorney wanted the drug running theory to be completely disproven. 
Now, this is because the district attorney knew that Segura's defense lawyer was going to use the drug running theory as an alternate explanation as to what happened to the family. Up until this point, Santos was deemed an unreliable witness, and there were no records of unusual spending by Brandy or large deposits in her bank account. Her home, her wardrobe, and her life seemed to reflect the fact that she was a single mother of three that was trying to provide a good life for her children, despite the fact that their fathers were $43,000 behind on child support combined. She was not living a luxurious lifestyle by any means. And she didn't even have a car. So it's a little hard to run drugs when you don't have a vehicle. Exactly. Which I think is why it's bogus, you know? But there was one other thing to dispel. Okay. The spade. So apparently some Mexican drug cartels leave spades as their calling cards when they've committed murders. It's like sending a message, hey, we're the ones who are responsible for this. Now, the detectives did their research and they felt like this could easily be disproven because in all cases of like a spade being left behind, they literally go with it being a calling card and they leave a playing card with the suit on the card being that of a spade. However, the defense team is going to claim that the this drug cartel, after killing Brandy, went into her garage, took a spade, and laid it on the floor. And the defense team is going to say this is proof that it's a calling card because there's no blood on the spade. So it wasn't used as a weapon, so why was it placed there? Then the prosecution's going to say, well, how do they know she has a spade in her garage? True. I don't, like, how would they know? I mean, I know that you can canvas an area, but still, I mean... That's some serious canvassing. I'm definitely like inside the garage. Yeah. She's using a spade. Like, <laughs> I don't but, think they would have known that. But somebody else could have done their research and and tried to pin it to make it look like something oh, else. Oh, interesting. Don't forget. Yeah. Like knowing that, okay, she talks to this guy who's a part of a cartel. So if I leave this, it could send police in a different direction. And not me. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't think of that. So just an aside here um at this point and this is definitely going to help the prosecution henry segura is in prison and he had been on the phone with his wife malika who was of course very upset because on top of like her husband being accused of murdering four people three of them being children one of them his own son she also found out that he had been lying to her and cheating on her not just with brandy but all of the other girlfriends and obviously, all of your phone recordings in jail are recorded. So she's on the phone with him and she says to him, I gave up my life for you. And in response, he says, I gave up mine for you, too. Which, in the context of the conversation, seemed like he was saying, I tried to get rid of a problem for us and look where I am now. Could we be looking at the possibility that both of them are involved? No, based on the conversations and the interviews that Malika has with him, it's definitely obvious that she had no part in any planning of this. So the police don't think that Malika no. did this at all? No, they they oh, don't. Okay, so they that. just think it's the, the husband. Yeah, like right away from the first interview they have with her while she's like 
defending his alibi, they were like, we don't think that she did this. Okay. The lawyer for Segura seemed to be a good one. He seemed to know his way around a defense case. And he was really showy. And he was like, kind of like one of those like million dollar smile kind of guys. And he stated in an interview that before this, before the trial with Segura, he had put 44 other convicted felons on the stand and he had gotten them off based on their own credibility. And it was something that he was going to do again. So from the very beginning, he said, I'm putting Segura on the stand because I want the jury to hear it right from his mouth that he didn't do it and explain away all the lying he did. So that was the tactic he was going to go into the trial with. The trial began in 2017, six years after his arrest and the whole time he was in prison. The reason for the delay was the arguing between both sides as to what was to be admissible or not, especially the communications between James Carlos Santos and Brandy Peters and the man's confession. During the two-and-a-half-week trial, the prosecution laid out the case for the jury as I did above. The motive was money and wanting Brandy out of his life. And in addition to that, it was stated that Brandy had sometimes, you know, like I said before, taunted Segura with the fact that Javante might not be his. And this angered him just in the way that she would say, well, if you're not going to be his father, someone else will. To that effect. And he took it more as he's got another father. Okay. And of course, they're going to bring up the phone conversations that happened the presence of his DNA on the bathtub, the fact that he was physically there because his phone had shown that he was there. And on the other side, the defense claimed that Brandy had been running drugs for a dangerous cartel and that she and her children had been murdered because she had skimmed $90,000 off of the top. Santos was called to the stand during the trial but the entire time he evoked his Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself, which was strange because he at first told the defense he was going to admit it again, but then he didn't. So he does seem to, like, be a little unstable. Unreliable. I don't know which word is better to use with for him. <laughs> um, the defense also argued that the evidence was weak that there was a possibility of this being other suspects because Segura's DNA was found by the bathtub, but not really anywhere else at the scene, and other people's DNA had been found around the scene. Another interesting piece of information is that the DNA that was found beneath the nails of Brandy Peters was not a match for Henry Segura, but a match for an unknown male. Really? Yeah. Huh. This is interesting. Yeah, it's like, where are we in this investigation now? Like, I'm actually like on this weird roller coaster that I don't don't even want to be on. Because in one hand, a lot of things match Henry. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, right, you have this whole cartel thing. Because it could just be somebody random from that. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I think the fact that the DNA beneath her nails is an unknown male is a real head scratcher. It is. And it's one of the biggest things to his defense then because... And the fact that he has no injuries on his body. That's true too. But his location 
proves is that he was there. Well, the defense team is going to claim that the murder took place after he had left. Uh, that could also be because we we don't really know, right? We don't know too much about the time that he spent there, right? The time frame is very confusing. Um, and that's something that can't really be hammered down. He said he left around 820. And that's kind of when the GPS confirms that to be true. At first, Randy Peter's sister said that she had talked to her around 10 p.m., but then she later said that she didn't couldn't recall what time it was. So I don't know. It's confusing. I know. Weird, right? It, it actually is. Like, I'm sitting here, and I'm. you really got me drawing a blank. She had an interaction with another male and had scr- scratched him even... Not just like brutally scratched him, but just like scratched him in some type of way that could put DNA underneath her fingernails. And if when Segura had done this, he was wearing, like you said, a hoodie and gloves, then his stuff wouldn't be all over the place. So I think it all depends on on that. I agree. And I think that I need to try to separate this whole thing and just say there's still too much towards Henry than there is the cartel. Correct. And even the things that could, where it puts you in the direction of the cartel, it could just be something that was well-researched and then, like, for example, that right. spade, for him yeah. to, like, look, frame it as if it was the cartel. Right. So even though the body evidence doesn't really match up 100%, mm-hmm. I'm still leaning towards that, though. Right. And we still don't know how long Henry Segura really stayed at the house. Like, He could have left, put his phone somewhere, and then came back. Because the thing about when Henry Segura would visit Brandy Peter's house, he never parked in her driveway because he didn't want her wife to, because he didn't want his wife to know that he was there. So he would park blocks away and walk to her house. So had he walked blocks away, put his phone somewhere, or turned it off, and then went back to her house? Yeah, I'm still leaning towards Henry. I really, I mean, I. If she skimmed ninety thousand dollars off the top of of these drugs, I she mean, she would have some money. She would have money, and you would have found it somewhere: bank account, floorboard, sock. You'd or find family, it somewhere. Or suspicious spending within her family, or people that knew her. Like, where did this ninety thousand dollars go? And if uh, what James Carlos Santos is saying is true, then she had been doing this for a while. Well, her lifestyle didn't reflect it. No, it didn't. She would have spent it on herself or her children, and it it didn't happen. Right, exactly. I mean, listen, if you're on a budget and you're trying to do everything that you can to get by, and then all of a sudden you come into $90,000, it's normal for anybody to start to do some lavish things. You know, even exactly. in small increments, right. you would see something. Buy a purse, yeah. have your car fixed. The family would notice it. Yeah. She would have probably, if she had $90,000, how about this? She would have fixed her mother's car and her own. Right. And then her mother would have been like, hmm, I'm going to remember. You're going to remember that, right? So if when and then when the cops go and ask, hey, anything out of the ordinary, uh, Mrs. Whatever? And then she would turn around and go, you know what? Actually, yeah, you know, my, my daughter didn't have money, but then fixed both our cars out of nowhere. Right. So I don't believe this. It's But it did give you cause for pause, it, finding that out. A long pause. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the same happened with this jury. After 19 hours of deliberation over a two-day period, the jury told the judge that they were deadlocked, that they couldn't agree. 
and it seemed like the defense had created reasonable doubt. A mistrial had been declared. Wow. So the second trial wouldn't happen until 2019. So that's, it's wild. This is like nine years after the fact. So this second trial was stalled 12 times. While again, both sides argued as to what, you know, should be admitted into evidence. One of the major points of contention was a series of threatening emails that had been exchanged between Peters and Santos just days before her murder. Segura's defense attorney stated that these helped him prove that she was scared of the drug cartel and alluded to her involvement within it. In the end, the judge ruled that only some of the emails were admissible. The second trial was a doozy, and it was aired on Law and Crime. So if you want to watch the whole thing, it's available, and I'll link it in the show notes. The entire time from Segura's arrest until the trial began in August of 2019, he had been behind bars. This was a death penalty case, and it was clear that the jury did take their jobs very seriously. Because of the mistrial and all of the delays, it was clear that both sides were going to come in hot. And the prosecution started it by showing the devastating and traumatizing pictures of the crime scene to the jury. And they were visibly shaken. Wow. Imagine seeing that and being a parent and like even just being a person and seeing another person suffer like that, like Brandy's face was almost unrecognizable. She had massive lacerations on her forehead and she was so bruised and swollen. It was, it's very disturbing photos. Well, yeah. I mean, and you have to think though that that is put in front of a jury to really let them understand that this was not just, you know, a murder, which is terrible, but it was also a brutal, the, a brutal beating and drowning and of the, of little kids Like, this was brutal. Yeah. It was very sad. (sighs) Wow. So the prosecution focused on the lies that Henry Segura told. He had lied to the police about his second phone and the fact that he had gone over Brandy's house that Friday night to have sex. In fact, they point out, after showing Segura's interview with police, that he said he had not been at Brandy's house that night 23 times. And he lied all 23 times. So why now should they believe him? I mean, that's a good point, right? Yeah. They put out there that Segura, as he had so many times before, had gone over to get what he wanted and to try and put the charm on Brandy to manipulate her again into holding off on the child support payments. And he had potentially become enraged by the fact that his tactics were not going to work anymore and that she wanted him to pay. They also cited that Brandy may have taunted Segura again with that allegation that Gervonta was not his son, and that he would still have to pay child support. And we know that that, like, he is the father of Gervonta, but, I mean, that would show, I mean, that would be a reason for him to become rageful. Another person that testified was one of Segura's girlfriends, She would testify that he had come to her not long before the murder, shaking with rage, asking her for a gun. So, I mean, this is someone who was rageful. He was trying to hide like everything was all good, but he was angry about things. 
this would have coincided with the court-ordered payment of $818. Then they also cited the physical evidence was again the DNA in the tub and the fact that his phone was tracked to Brandy's phone that night, that he had called her five times that day, and it appeared as if the two had gotten into an argument. The prosecution brought an expert witness to the stand that discussed what is known as the CSI effect. How everyone wants DNA evidence, but it doesn't always work like that. Brandy's house had been rented, so a lot of DNA was found inside of it. And Segura's DNA was found on the edge of the bathtub, like, handle. And that would be something you would have to hold on to if you were holding children down underwater. Actually, let's just take a second to think about that. I understand that there's prints and DNA and, and everything all over the place, but to find that there like that when he would only go there for brief times and norm and it seems like this time was just to have sex with Brandy. Right. It's odd to find that print. And there. he said he did not shower at the house. Right. So then that's even worse. Right. For him. Now the defense team is going to claim that, oh, that's just the DNA of Javante. Because he's biologically his son. But that's, it's not, it was a, it was a match for Henry Segura. I'm just saying that's what the defense yeah, claims. I, so, I mean, that's the thing when you really think about it. I understand it was a rented home and all this other thing, all these, all, all these other things. But mm-hmm. for that to be there and then those kids to be drowned there. Yeah. You, you know, you really can't get your way out of that. You can't wiggle out of that. But I agree with you. I think that's a, uh, Huge piece of evidence. Then the prosecution called a man named Kelsey Kennard to the stand. He had been a cellmate of Segura's while he had been waiting to stand trial. He said that Segura told him that he had lost it that day. Kennard said that he told me he was from Florida and he had killed four people. He told me he killed his baby's mom because him and her were going through some child support issues and he was upset. He killed her and the kids and everybody. Kennard said he warned Segura not to talk to him about his arrest, but that Segura went on to tell him that he shot Brandy and one of her daughters and then drowned the other two children. On cross-examination, the defense got out of Kennard that he also testified at four other trials in exchange for a reduction in sentencing. But he said, I don't lie, I tell the truth. It's what people tell me. I don't believe that either. And I think it's not the fact that he's like a jailhouse informant or or even the fact that he's done this four times. It's actually that when you're in prison for the, as long as he has been, the last thing that you want to do is to tell anybody your business, especially when you've killed children. Uh, like I'm pretty sure they do not take uh, that lightly in prison. When they find out what you're there for, Especially killing your own child. Exactly. They're going to have a hit on you. Well, wait. There's more. Okay. Okay. Because at this point, Kennard also said that while they were in the cell together, that Segura had written rap songs and he would perform the rap. And within the song, he admitted to committing the murders and that he was, in quotes, nothing to be played with because it was a part of the song. And that he also mailed these songs to Malika. I mean, that's an interesting piece of evidence that I think just a jailhouse snitch wouldn't just say. 
Like, seemed like he did that. He wouldn't just make that up because there would be physical evidence somewhere that he did that. Well, then I guess it's just as plain as uh, plain and simple. He's really dumb. <laughs> yeah. To, to, you know, I mean, if you're in prison already and you're trying to, you're having these cases to uh, get you out of prison for this, and then you go and do this, you're just making the hole deeper. Right. And it could also be that, like, he does want to be known as a murderer because then maybe people will leave him alone for the kid stuff. That's a possibility. But I just find that if they were to find out, if somebody was, um, you know, to find out about kids, that might be bad for him. Yeah. I think so. But I think the the whole song thing is very interesting as well. It's a weird uh, it's a weird thing, yeah. So the strategy of the defense was the same as it had been in the first trial. To poke holes in the physical evidence of the prosecution's case and also to create reasonable doubt by claiming that somebody else had killed Brandy. What the defense was saying was that if the prosecution is claiming that Segura killed Brandy and the children over back child support, then why hadn't he killed his the other woman that he owed back child support to? Um, and they also said that somebody else did it, that it was James Carlos Santos that had ordered the hit on Brandy. I think, in my opinion, I think the James Carlos Santos of it all is making things really confusing because I think he's a very unreliable narrator in this case. And I also think that it's different between Brandy and Segura than this woman that lives in Orlando and Segura because Henry Segura had gone over and like played house with Brandy and had a child with her around the same time that he lost a child with his wife. So I think his relationship with Brandy was very different than with the woman of his other child. Right, because he was still he was still messing with her. He was still, right. you know, he was still having a relation, a physical, you know, sexual relationship with her too. Correct. I just think that you know, if you're, you know, the the whole Santos guy and also Henry. I mean, like at the end of the day, here you guys are both impeding an investigation, and you know, your son has just been murdered. So I. He wasn't necessarily forthcoming with things that he knew. Correct. So Santos was brought in to testify, and he stated that he knew Brandy, that they had met around 2000 or 2001. He claimed that she transported narcotics for him. And because she had stolen money and drugs from him, that he directed his associates to kill her. He said that he had to order the murders, or else he would face repercussions from the cartel. When the prosecution cross-examined him, his mental health past was brought up, including the fact that he was deemed a pathological liar and that he had confessed to several other murders in prison, which he was proven to not have committed. He also could not describe what Brandy looked like in any way. And this is the man who said he knew Brandy for 10 years, but he couldn't tell anyone what she looked like. Finally, the prosecution asked Santos how Brandy was able to run drugs for him or anyone else for that matter if she didn't have a car. And for that, he had no answer. Next, Henry Segura himself took the stand. The defense team felt like the strongest evidence the prosecution had was the fact that Segura had, time and time again, lied to the detectives. So they wanted to put him on the stand to explain why he had done that. 
He said he lied because he didn't want to admit to the fact that he was cheating on his wife again because he didn't want to make himself look guilty. He said that he had been uncomfortable with the fact that he was a black man in a room with two white police officers. He said he had been intimidated and scared, so he lied. He did not think that lying about cheating on his wife would make him a suspect for murder. Now, the prosecution chose a female ADA to handle the cross-examination of Segura, which definitely wasn't a strategy for them. She started off by asking him about the dispute that he had with Brandy over child support. He said that it was a lot of money, but that he was going to pay it. After that, the prosecutor asked him that if he was so intimidated and scared that why he was joking throughout the whole interview. And she kept asking him, what was so funny here? What was so funny here? Like bringing up specific incidents. Following that, the attorney went through all of the lies that he told the police one by one. The phone, his alibi, the fighting over child support, the girlfriends, the lies he told to his wife. She went on and on and on. And he admitted that he lied each time. And then she said, why should the jury believe you now? Segura said that he learned to right his wrongs. But as the prosecutor continued to like fire questions at him, Segura became very agitated and he actually became quite aggressive with her. Enough that the judge had to tell him that he had to calm down and let the ADA finish her questions before he responded back to her. It did not look good to the jury. He had revealed his aggressive side, which of course had been the strategy of the prosecution in having a female ADA question him. Right. So the jury's seeing this unfold. And what they're seeing now in the courtroom is probably how it started in that house. Right. In the closing arguments, the prosecution went through their case again. There was no reason for Segura's DNA to be where it was. He had been mad at Brandy. He owed her a lot of money, and it was court-ordered that he would have to pay just shy of one-third of his take-home salary to her. In addition to that, he was a liar, and he admitted to that, and he also bragged about committing the murders in prison. When it came to the claim that Brandy had been trafficking drugs and money for the cartel, they said that that was ridiculous. If that were the case, where are the people saying that they'd seen her do this? that they had seen her with cash, that she had sold them drugs or she had talked to them about drugs or they'd even seen her with drugs. Where was the money? The only thing that that house showed was that she was a struggling single mother, not someone who had been skimming drugs and money from a cartel. In their closing, the defense stuck to the reasonable doubt theory. They stated that over 200 samples of DNA were found in that house. An unidentified DNA had been found under Brandy's fingernails. They then went in again with their theory that she had been involved in the drug cartel. The spade was left as a calling card. And that there was reasonable doubt because she had been involved with the cartel. And because, and this is going back to the DNA found on the phone card that was a partial match, that a known drug dealer's DNA was potentially at the scene. And someone else owed her money too, right? Meaning the first Antonio Anthony. It was a passionate speech. It was a good closing. And the prosecution knew it and they were nervous about it. 
the jury came back in less than four hours. Henry Segura was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. They didn't believe him. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, it seemed like there was just too much stacked against him for it not to have gone down this way. Yeah, I agree. And listen, it's not like we're talking like, you know, sometime in the 90s before computers. We're talking about, you know, a modern day uh, time. So, I mean, this person could have easily just looked up, you know, he was in the house at other times. He could have saw a letter uh, right. from the guy and then said, hmm, okay, let me, you know, I could try to pin this to look a certain way. And I think that that is a possibility. Yeah, you know? it is. I think the whole drug thing makes no sense. And I know I already spoke about it, so I won't go too much again into it. But just I just don't think it does. If you don't have money and then all of a sudden you're getting money, there is a trace of it somehow. Even cash, there's a trace. Well, then I think that that's a good point that the prosecution brought up in their closing argument is somebody would have. Because the detectives are trying to find out, like, did anyone see Brandy with drugs? Did anyone know her as someone who and nobody came forward exactly so there would have been someone out there that would have been able to at least corroborate this story in some way and they just couldn't find anybody and how are you delivering this by bicycle by by just walking down the street right she didn't even have a car that worked exactly well after this segura's defense team took an interesting strategy they believe that the best way to defend him was not to fight the death penalty. The theory behind this was that he would have more appeals if he was sentenced to death versus being sentenced to life. So he didn't fight the death penalty. In fact, he asked for it. And if you ask for the death penalty, it means you have to kind of like almost confess. So even though he's been denying that he did it the whole case, he now says to the jury, I deserve the death penalty for what I did, right? Well, guess what? What? They don't give it to him. They don't give him it? Okay. Yeah, because they don't want to give him the appeals. Okay. Um. So, Or they, don't, they cho- didn't think he deserved it or whatever, but what the defense team wanted, they did not get. So um, the most recent of Segura's appeals was denied, and that was in November of 2021. And he's currently working on another appeal with his attorneys. I think they got the right man. I know that there's just a lot of floating information in this case. But at the end of the day, I mean, a woman and her kids were wiped out and brutally brutally just murdered. And they do deserve some justice and some peace. And I think that. And the families do too. Because they lost so much. And I think that, you know. I think he's capable of it. I think that there's enough information there and the fact that he is capable of it with his anger that he displayed in front of the jury that you can make the argument they got the right guy. There's too much stuff for it to be a coincidence. But I am curious about that unidentified DNA under her fingernails. I think that's the only thing that makes me really wonder. That is the only thing. Uh, And I agree with you there. That was heavy. That was a heavy one. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. So what do you think? Do you think that was a fair sentencing? Do you think they got the right guy? I'm really curious to think what you guys feel about it. (laughs) And if you're really super into this case and this is something that you want to know more about, Court Junkie did a great episode 
on this. And they did that back in 2020. And there's also the whole trial that you can watch online that we'll put in our show notes. But before we go, we want to say thank you to our new Patreon members. We hope you're enjoying all of that extra content. So thank you to Carrie Lynn, Kiana, Alex Underwood, Jade West, Vivian Blackburn, Kara Wanteke, Degla Williams, Tamara Henley, Teresa Silva, Martina McConchie, Jody Gonzalez, Mika Vernau, Sarah White, Claire Simpson, Amanda Rainey, Alexandra Linder, Elizabeth Barton, Emily Trozen, Kelly Buffone upped her pledge to $10, Jessica Akers, Jake Stover, Jane Longer, James Bunting, Allie upped her pledge to $10, Amy McCarthy, Shay Schrick, Kieran M., Bell, Caroline Workley, Jessica Hurley, Fran R., Wint, Olivia Peliquin, Seneca, Amy Eaton, Stan Perry, Gay Fosh, Erica Salazar, Kim, Stephanie Lynn, Bethany Sheely, Danny Bulmer, and Catherine. Thank you guys so much for joining. And again, really hope you're enjoying everything, ad-free episodes, and all of that extra content. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.